A 2015 Brookings report on race equality in the workplace cited that the number of blacks working in the tech industry had quintupled in the period between 1966 and 2014. Impressive, right? Well, not really when you take into account that quintupling moved the needle from 3.2% of the overall tech workforce to 6.4%. The tech industry is often singled out for its diversity gap, but in June 2014, the Atlantic revealed similar gaps in sector after sector after sector. Business leaders often cite diversity as a priority. But what does that mean exactly, and how do you make it happen? Today we'll hear from Professor Robin Ely about her companion cases entitled Managing Diversity at Cityside Financial Services and Spencer Owens and Company. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all sitting there in the classroom. Professor walks in. And they look up and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call. Professor Ely conducts research on race and gender relations in organizations. As senior associate dean for the school's community and cultural initiative, she led a culture change initiative right here at Harvard Business School, and she currently leads the school's gender initiative. Robin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So uh, I think these cases are very relatable. This is uh, new for us at Cold Call to do two cases in one Mm -hmm. conversation, but they're obviously written uh, to be discussed together, and that's how you do it in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So it made sense to do it that way. Can you set up the cases for us? How How do they begin? Yeah, sure. These are actually cases that come from my research with David Thomas. So we uh, have done a lot of field research in organizations looking at race and gender relations over the years. And these are two examples where uh, these organizations actually were quite successful in hiring a very diverse uh, organization. And we focus on race in particular in these two organizations. They're racially diverse um, in, in quite similar ways, in fact, across levels of the hierarchy, which is rather unusual. But neither one is really able to uh, leverage the benefits from that diversity for um, for their performance. Yeah. And so you've got two uh, firms here that you're discussing. The names have been changed, but these are real firms? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So let's start with Cityside. What they, had, they Actually, both of them, I think, had uh, impressive-looking results from their diversity hiring initiative. So they achieved some level of success. Right. And then what happens? Right. Well, and then that's what's interesting about studying these cases, because so often companies are, they're just struggling to create diversity, to hire diversity. So these are organizations that have actually managed to to do that. And then that's when they encounter problems. Mm -hmm. And Cityside uh, Financial Services is a retail bank. Um, Yep, retail bank. Two two sides of their business. Describe that to us a little bit. Yeah, so they're located in an inner city and and they were founded specifically with the mission to revitalize uh, businesses and and, and residential areas within the, the inner city where it's situated. And they have a a part of the organization which they call the sales division. And so the sales division developed um, two kind of parallel functions. One was to serve the clientele in the local community, which was a poor, relatively poor African-American community. And the other was to serve this broader clientele uh, that was wealthier and largely white. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting about the division is the way that they staffed the two. The part that, that is serving the local community is... I think entirely actually African-American, and the part that serves the broader, wealthier white clientele is white. So essentially they are matching 
the market that they're serving, which right. you know you could think is a great idea. This is this is part of the business case for diversity. Is is you know you've got a diverse market, sure. so yeah. you hire a diverse workforce in order to be able to relate to those market segments. But it also you know it makes it appear as though I mean so they've got the numbers that they want, but what they've largely done is segregated themselves within the organization. So exactly. the diversity is really superficial. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's it's diverse if you look at the sales division, but if you look at you know each component of the sales division, they're not diverse. And I think what's actually, this is part of the problem with that approach, uh, is that what inevitably happens is what happened here. And that is that the white division ends up being higher status. And the black division ends up being lower status. That's what you refer to as market-driven diversity. Right. right. We call that, they had an access and legitimacy perspective on their diversity. So they were very successful in becoming diverse. And the reason they were doing it was in order to gain access to and legitimacy with their diverse market. Okay. So an understandable business rationale. Talk about Spencer and Owen, because they had a different motivation that was driving them. What was, what's the story there? Yeah. So that's a a consulting firm. And they realized that they really needed to be uh, more diverse in order to kind of live out and be a representative of the justice interests that they were serving in the mm-hmm. work that they were doing. So they became diverse largely as a way of advancing uh, fairness and equality. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of justice-driven um, right. viewpoint. Right. So different perspectives, uh, both understandable you know, rationales behind this. So um, <laughs> what went wrong? So I gave some hints in the Cityside case already. When you have this kind of internal segregation and where people are, are essentially being hired um, for one specific thing, the dynamic that tends to happen is the broader sort of cultural power differential gets imported into the organization, and that's essentially what happened here. So you mm-hmm. have one group of employees, and you know these are black employees from the very lowest part of the of that function in the organization, all the way to the senior management positions, was African American, and then the other side was white all the way through, but that the white side had more status, mm-hmm. and it was difficult for African Americans to actually rise within the white side. Of the function, and then because they were in some ways doing the same kind of work—that is, they were developing, you know, financial products for clientele—as their clientele started to expand into the city and wealthier city local clients um, really needed to be serviced with products that were being produced by the white group. But actually, because they were within the city, they kind of fell within the purview of the black group. And so there became some confusion around, you know, whose clients these really were. And yeah, so as, as they grew, it became problematic to keep these things uh, separate the way they were. You know, I, I really found the, uh, the commentary by the different the protagonists in the case mm-hmm. and the people that you interviewed uh, you could read so much between the lines of what people were saying, and and uh, you know. So tell me about what those conversations were like. I mean, was what was the sense there? Well, so it's kind of interesting because while on the one hand I'm describing some of the problems associated with this kind of internal segregation um, aligned with the markets, that arose for, in a sense, a good reason. And and some of those reasons were actually described in positive ways. So, for example, in uh, retail operations, that was the essentially black side, they actually prided themselves on knowing their clientele. Mm-hmm. So when local people came in, they were much better able to relate to them and to assess you know, their risk in terms of loans and things like that. And so they felt actually quite proud of that, but also kind of in, in a way, you know, held it over the white group. Like, you, know, you guys wouldn't know what to do with our yeah. clientele. Like, we're, you know, we're, we're much cooler than you are. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, we really know what's going on around here in the neighborhood that we're actually operating in. And then there were some cultural issues that grew up literally 
in the cultures of these groups and the way they operated, which became, you know, a source of antagonism because the white group was younger, actually, and much more professional and much higher educated, yeah. uh, like their clientele. And the black group was less so. But that translate, you know, if, as you read some of those comments, that came out in ways like, you know, we work really hard here, you know, nine to five. This isn't the place to be if you want a nine right. to five job. Right. So it's a much more that kind of, we used to call it yuppie, you know, but yeah. like the kind of young professional, you know, right out of college. This was like a really cool job to have, you know, out of graduate school, out of an MBA program, top MBA programs uh, were, were the people who were populating some of those jobs on the white side. Um, and that's just a very different kind of demographic than the other. And so when they did end up interacting with each other, it was tense. Mm-hmm. Um, both, I think, because they did take some pride in the fact that they were distinct and mm-hmm. they were distinct for some good reasons, but then that did create this tension. This episode of Cold Call is brought to you by Indeed. Right now, small businesses have to be more efficient than ever, and that means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost the visibility of your job post at Indeed.com slash cold call. That's Indeed.com slash cold call. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. Yeah, let's jump over to Spencer and Owens for yeah. a second. They had similar – so there's common threads here in the, the sort of attitudes and the feelings of the people involved, but the reasons that those things – that those feelings surfaced were different, you know, in Spencer and Owens. And, and right. so what, what was at some of the causes there? Yeah, so, so Spencer and Owens, they, they, as I said, you know, took this kind of justice focus and their really philosophy about, about their diversity was that you really shouldn't see differences. Um, so this is very much a race-blind approach um, and that when the whole purpose of diversifying is to advance equality mm-hmm. and there's no discussion about how that diversity, once it's hired, once it's been incorporated into the organization, is going to actually influence the way they do the work – there's really no capacity to deal with those differences. And on top of that, there's a kind of strong moral belief that differences shouldn't matter. So when, in fact, they do start to matter, because people do come into the organization with points of view that have been shaped by their cultural background and wanting to actually apply those insights to the work, that's when, you know, there becomes some conflict, because there was a kind of standard way of doing things. And, you know, but that was really actually the predominantly white traditional way of doing things, you know, before they brought the diversity in. And so they're bringing diversity in, but not actually diversifying the work. Yeah, so we're colorblind as long as you do things the way that we would like to have them done. Right, Right. exactly. And to me, that was a tremendous insight because, you know, I've always assumed that you should not look, you shouldn't consider somebody's color or race right. or background. And I think most of it come at it that way. But here in this particular instance, uh, it, it was part of the root problem that they were facing. Right, right, exactly. And that's what makes it an interesting case, because you can have students really grappling with this idea, well, what difference should diversity actually make? Mm-hmm. And if you you can see here the problems with undertaking this kind of race-blind ideology, which, by the way, the research shows, you know, whites 
are much more likely to want to take on that ideology because it feels like a non-racist approach to race relations. Mm -hmm. And white people don't like to be seen as racist, obviously, and are often anxious that they're going to do something that's perceived as racist. And so it's just much better not to talk about race, not to see race, and just to kind of deny that it's there. I think one of the people in the case even said, and this was a black woman who said, what what, what the white workers are so concerned about is that they're going to offend somebody. Right, right. Uh, We've all felt that sort of tension of walking on eggshells. So you've discussed this uh, with MBA students and with exec ed students too? Yeah, some executives, yeah. I'm I'm really curious. We have a very diverse uh, student population here in both of those programs. Yeah. What are some of the – what happens when the discussion unfolds? You don't need to give everything away, but I'm just curious. (laughs) So I guess I would say some of the differences are when these ideas are are part of the discussion with executives, they can relate – very often to, you know, one or another of these perspectives. And so it's really interesting to have them. I like to move off the case um, when I can and, you know, really have them reflect on the parts of these. And that's why it's nice to have the two because mm-hmm. you, can, you can sort of get an array of different uh, experiences. And usually people can, you know, they say, you know, my, my division, this is what we've been doing. And yeah. you know what? We've been seeing some of these same problems. Whereas the MBA students, um, you know, they – they don't have as much experience running things, um, but they are much more likely to be on the kind of receiving end of some of these different approaches to managing diversity and to have their own experience in that respect. So they, they tend to talk about that. And I also like to, especially with the MBAs, to really bring it home mm-hmm. uh, right into our classroom, certainly within the school, but then also within the classroom and to say, you know, what, what do you think is the perspective that Harvard Business School has mm-hmm. on, on diversity? And uh, what's been your experience here? And what's your experience in the classroom right here? Yeah. And your work and the role that I mentioned in the introduction certainly uh, surfaced some of those feelings, too. And it's been documented that, that HBS deals with this issue like every other organization does. You know, one of the questions that I had in mind was, is it worth it? <laughs> it seems like it's a really almost intractable situation that these two organizations are facing, but there's no choice, right? I mean, we live in a diverse world. We have to figure yeah. out how to do this. Yeah. And I think increasingly, this is pretty widely known that if you really want to hire the best talent, you are going to end up hiring race and gender and and in other respects, diverse group of people. So it's not really a choice. It's not really sort of, you know, is it worth it? Well, you know, what's worth it is to figure out how to actually do it effectively. Mm -hmm. Do you know of any firms that that are having good success in this area? (laughs) People always ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) They want to model the copy. I know. Um, Well, I often get asked, you know, what are the best practices these cases came out of research that David Thomas and I were doing, and there was a third organization that was really part of the research and part of what we wrote about in various places. And so that was an example, actually, where, again, similarly racially diverse uh, across levels of the hierarchy, mm-hmm. but they were really able to leverage their diversity. And what made the difference is that they they used their diversity as a resource for learning how to do the core work of the organization. So if you think about CitySide, that's an example of an organization that was trying to use its diversity to enhance its effectiveness. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really allowing that diversity to inform anything other than a very sort of narrowly prescribed part of the work. In this other organization, its perspective was a, um, an integration and learning perspective. It was an organization that was really equipped, really interested in and equipped to learn from the racial differences that it hired. In fact, it started as an organization with an access and legitimacy perspective. It was a law firm 
a public interest law firm. The mission was to serve the rights and interests of low-income uh, women, mm-hmm. and it was a, an entirely white organization. In some ways, you know, just like the bank, they were like, hey, here we are in, this, in the middle of a, of, a, of a black community that we're actually trying to revitalize with this bank, and you know, we need to start reflecting the community. Yeah. So, um, so, so they, I mean, kudos to all of them for recognizing that. Yeah, and for, yeah, exactly, and it's a sophisticated and important recognition. What this organization was able to do, though, that Cityside wasn't, is that when it hired its first woman of color. It was actually called the Woman of Color Project. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was really like <laughs> off to the side. Yeah. Um, and very much, you know, we need somebody to give us access to and legitimacy with the people that we're trying, whose interests we're trying to to serve. So they quickly learned that, no, this was not a woman of color project. She was going to enter the organization and she was going to really change the definition of the central work that we do. Mm-hmm. That we, we, we just can't we're not even approaching the work right. Our mission is great, but the way we've defined what it means to serve that mission is not really serving maximally the interests that we want to serve. And mm-hmm. so she was able to come in and, and work with them. And, you know, it was a lot, it was a lot of conflict. Yeah. Even when I was there uh, collecting data, you know, they were anticipating my coming and they said, oh, we had this Robin Ely event last <laughs> week. I was like, oh, my God, what's that? They'd never even met me. Wow. just my name. Well, they'd had a, a racial conflict. They knew I was coming to study something about their race relations. Uh-huh. So that's what you've become known <laughs> as. That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Well, tell me all about it. You know? And so there was this, it had been this situation where they had an opportunity to do a fundraiser with um, a Latino theater group. Mm-hmm. And um, the group in the organization, so this, it's interesting because the whole organization was, was not oriented the way that the program part of the organization was, the delivery of program. So this opportunity came in, and it didn't go to the program people. It went to the fundraising people, mm-hmm. and they were white. Yeah. And they made the decision without asking anybody else that they weren't going to spend their time doing that. And the Latinas in the organization learned about it, and they were like, what? <laughs> this, this is like an amazing opportunity. So they had this conflict. The Latinos were saying, you know, you guys made the wrong decision is because you don't get it and, um, and you should have asked us. And so I went into a staff meeting where this conflict was still brewing mm-hmm. and I was able to witness the turning point in it. And the turning point was very instructive because it came when one of the Latinas said, you don't understand. This is a group where if we are able to fundraise uh, there and with them, we're going to have a connection. We're going to get ourselves in front of the very people that our programs are trying to serve. Right. Mm-hmm. And then everybody was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Okay. But they really weren't able to see it until they moved the problem into the domain of the program. The program staff had been truly diversified in such a way that the central work of the organization, of mm-hmm. the program, was informed by these cultural differences. But they really were not at a place where the fundraising function was integrated. Yeah. And so they had to move the conversation into the place where they could have the understanding of what it meant you know, to really learn from their diversity in mm-hmm. order for it to work. So much of it seems to come back to communication and listening. Well, and, you know, you know uh, so that's the thing. I mean, people now, there's all this big, you know, everybody's doing implicit bias training, yeah. which is fine, and uh, but it's a, not a strategy yeah. <laughs> for managing diversity or leveraging benefits from diversity because you can do all the consciousness raising you want. But if people don't learn how to have these conversations – then it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even implicit bias, it's the whole point of it is unconscious. So how would you know 
Right. If you were actually engaging in some kind of implicitly biased behavior, unless somebody pointed it out to you, mm-hmm. well, that means you got to be able to talk about this stuff, and it's tough. Yeah. Well, but, these cases are very helpful, I think. Robin, thank you for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. You can find this case along with thousands of others in the HBS case collection at hbr.org. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you've been listening to Cold Call.